Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. You'll know that we are on the third journey for this year. The outward journey. The first journey is inward. There are some things that in the Christian life that we take care of that are internal, right? Those issues like pride and selfishness and all those things that we want to overcome in our lives. There are fruits of the Spirit that we want to cultivate. What are some fruits of the Spirit we want to cultivate in our lives as Christians? Just shout them out. Love, Love, peace, joy, joy, kindness. kindness. Right? That's great. Self-control. That's the inward journey, right? How do you know if you're doing well in the inward journey? Well, that's one measuring yardstick that you can say, am I more kind, loving, patient, good this year than I was last year? All right, you're on the inward journey. What's the upward journey? What's that all about? Us and the Father. Us and the Father, connecting in deeper ways with God. Say that again. Beholding and becoming. Beholding and becoming. Someone was paying attention. (laughs) The more we behold Jesus, the more we become like him. That's actually true of everything in life, right? The more you behold it, the more you gaze upon it, the more you study it, the more you look to it, the more you become like it. So in the upward journey, we want to become more Christ-like. We want to be shaped by the person of Jesus. And we're in the final journey, the outward journey. And what's the outward journey all about? Us and others. One of the great uh, tragedies that can happen to us, either individually as Christians or as the church, is that we take all of the blessing and the goodness that God has poured out into our lives, we take all of the grace, and we keep it for ourselves. That's a great tragedy that we would keep it all for ourselves because it was never intended to just be for us. It was never intended to just be for us. It's actually always been that way. Uh, When God created Adam and Eve, what did he say? Did he say, stay here in Eden and make sure that Eden is, this garden is cultivated and stays perfect? He actually said something else. What did he say to Adam and Eve? Go, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Uh, When God formed the nation of Israel from Abram in the Old Testament, was it just Abram's family that was to be blessed? All families and all nations on the earth will be blessed through you. When God gave the law to Moses in Exodus it says that Israel was to be a chosen people. They were actually to be priests. Well, what does a priest do? Well, a priest is that person that's kind of between you and God in some way, right? A priest in some way mediates or helps to build a relationship between you and God. Well, in the Old Testament, God said to Israel, you're you're to be priests. 
you as a nation are to be priests. Well, well, if they're the priests and there's God on one side, then what's the other group? Well, it's all the other nations. All the other nations. Israel was to be that priestly nation. So God has always been interested in the outward journey. Always been interested in the outward journey. And that's what we're talking about. We're actually going to spend the next few weeks mostly in one particular book of the New Testament, and that is the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a great book to spend some time in. The book of Acts is a little bit like a hinge. Right? You walk through a door. That door is on a hinge. Right? So you can all visualize with me what a hinge looks like. So why is the book of Acts like a hinge? The book of Acts comes right after the four Gospels that tell the life of Christ. So that's one part of the hinge. That's one piece. Coming right after the book of Acts, we have Romans and we have Paul's letters. And right between the Gospels and Paul's letters, we have this book of Acts. So if you imagine that the book of Acts is like that central pin in the hinge, is that what it's called? I don't even know. There we go. The book of Acts is like that. Because the book of Acts finishes with the life of Christ just about ending before he goes to heaven. And the second half of the book of Acts is all about Paul. And it's all about the church. And that's why we want to spend some time in the book of Acts this month. Because we're going to learn about what happened at the end of Jesus' life. How was the church started? And kind of what does that mean for the outward journey? What does it mean for us? So I want you to imagine with me that you are one of the disciples and that you have been with Jesus for about three years and you can be just so, just beyond your wildest dreams, encouraged, blessed, whatever that word is, to capture your excitement. That Jesus has chosen you to be part of his closest disciples, that you are following Jesus and you get to see the miracles up front, You get to hear him as he teaches and preaches. You get to see people's reaction when they get healed. You get to just see all of it up front, right? That would be incredible, right? But maybe maybe between villages, as you're walking and talking with Jesus, maybe you're saying to one of your fellow disciples, uh, where do you think this is heading? Where's all this going to end? You know, Jesus being fully human, as well as fully divine, but being fully human, Jesus had a natural lifespan. Uh, Jesus wasn't going to live forever in his human form. And your natural lifespan in the Middle East about 2,000 years ago was not super long. And so a natural question becomes, where's all this heading? And you would have been pretty excited because you would have seen all the crowds come to Jesus, right? Remember that's that part of the ministry where there's just so many people, they've got to get into boats to escape. Um, You would have seen people get healed. You would have seen so many great things. But you also would have seen the part of Jesus' ministry where people turned against him, where people walked away. There you go. Thank you. You would have seen things maybe not go quite as you might have expected, right? And then especially towards the end, it actually became quite dangerous to be associated with Jesus, right? Uh, It became quite uncertain, and especially that last week when you're in Jerusalem, 
and Jesus is killed, and you're thinking like, whoa, this isn't right. This is not the way it's supposed to go, right? And why is that? Because Jesus was the Messiah, the long-anticipated one who was to come and make all things right. In that day, you would have believed that the Messiah was going to come in, and he was going to bring freedom and liberation. And what did that mean in that day? Well, it meant that you were going to get rid of the Romans, right? The Romans were the, the evil empire of the day, the occupying force. And as a faithful Jew, you would have wanted rid of the Romans to get the land back to yourself and their rightful rule. And this was all going to happen under the Messiah. So when, when Jesus says, we're going to go to Jerusalem, the disciples are like, yes, it's finally going to happen. Jesus is going to storm the city. He's going to take over. And you know what that means? Victory. And I'm in charge too because I'm with Jesus, right? I wonder what I'm going to be in charge of. So if you think that's merely uh, speculation, remember when a couple of the disciples' moms, when, when mom went to Jesus and said, hey, would it be okay, Jesus, if my son sat on... That's a dangerous question. So... These are natural responses. Where is all this going? So the book of Acts actually tells us where it went and how things actually ended up. So the book of Acts was written by uh, the same person that wrote the Gospel of Luke. And uh, there are actually two parts of kind of the one story. So uh, Luke's Gospel ends, and then we also have this, this book of Acts. And they're both written to the same person, this person called Theophilus, who we... I think was a real person, but we don't really know much about him. So at the very, very start of Acts, Luke says, hey, remember that first book I wrote and I sent it to you? Well, that book was all about what Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken to heaven. But he actually gave some instructions before he went, and so we're going to see what those are. And this is all answering the question that the disciples would have had and anybody else who had seen Jesus' ministry, of what's next, right? What's next? Because remember, if the end goal wasn't getting rid of the Romans, then what's the point of all of this? What's the goal, right? So in Luke's Gospel, he's already explained all that Jesus has done. Now he's going to explain what comes next, and he's going to really start to explain what it means. A few verses later, he describes the fact that there was one time Jesus was eating with his disciples. Now, this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, but he has not yet gone to, ascended into heaven. He's eating, and he says to the disciples, Don't leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you have heard me speak about. A few verses later, Acts 1.8, You will receive... Power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Uh, this verse, Acts 1, uh, verse 8, actually is the roadmap for the rest of the book of Acts. Because we actually then see the fact that the gospel starts in Jerusalem, and that they are witnesses in Jerusalem, then to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So this actually is part of what's next. But it might have felt a little bit weird to the disciples, right? You were at your absolute lowest point. Jesus dies on the cross. He is buried. What happens to the disciples in that moment? Well, they go into hiding, basically, right? 
they're, they're on the ground. They're like off the radar. And then Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and he has to go and find them, right? <laughs> he goes and finds them. He spends time with them. He eats with them. He proves that he has risen from the dead. And suddenly, as a disciple, you are just, wow, this is incredible. But now what? Now what happens? And Jesus, in that moment of maybe this combination of excitement and joy and fear, says a couple of things that would have been perhaps very confusing to the disciples. Number one, he says, I want you to go back into Jerusalem and just wait. Uh, That might, might be hard, right? We're often in our society not very good at waiting. And sometimes if God says to wait, you're like, nope, that must be wrong because... I want to do something, right? But he actually says to wait. And the second thing is, he said, you'll be my witnesses eventually to all the ends of the earth, right? Well, if you heard that message as a disciple of Jesus, you might say, well, that can't be right. Because I thought the Jews were God's people. But that really sounds like everybody is supposed to be part of God's family. And it also sounds like we're going to have to do some traveling. This is going to be really complicated, right? Are you sure, Jesus? What happens? Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost comes. And what has happened is they have obeyed Jesus. They have gone to Jerusalem and they have sat and they have been in prayer and they have been in fellowship and they have been waiting. And they've been waiting and they've been waiting And on the day of Pentecost, when they are all gathered together, a sign like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Wow! This is incredible. There's never been anything like this before. Even when they were with Jesus himself, nothing like this happened, right? This is amazing. Jesus has ascended to heaven at this point. They're waiting in Jerusalem. And suddenly, during this big festival day that's happening, the day of Pentecost was this Old Testament festival when you brought the first fruits or the first part of your harvest and you dedicated it to God and you gave thanks to him. That's the day People are from all over the world are in Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And that's the day when this happens. Wow. We got wind. We got fire. We got the Holy Spirit. We got speaking in in other tongues. This is incredible. Now, if you were uh, somebody who was inclined to ask questions, your question might be, What's going on? And in fact, that's what happened. This gathering didn't just stay inside the one room. It made it onto the streets. Yeah. Right? We can't contain something like this. And as it goes out into the streets, people are in bewilderment because they're saying, I can hear the things of God being spoken in my own language. Remember, there's people from all over the world here and and in the second chapter of Acts, it actually tells you all the different countries and regions people are from. They're from, they're from Africa, Europe, Asia. They're from all over. 
And they're each hearing about the things of God in their own language. And they're pretty surprised because they're saying, aren't these guys from Galilee? Right? That's weird. There's no way somebody from Galilee knows how to speak Egyptian or knows how to speak Latin in a way that I can understand it. But this is what's happening. People are hearing and they're understanding. And they're amazed, right? And they're bewildered. They're trying to say, what is going on? And that's a legitimate question. And here we have all of the different languages, and they're saying to each other, what does this mean? What does this mean? And you know, sometimes in our lives, we might ask of God, what does this mean? What's going on? Because it might not always match up with what we expect. Now Peter stands up, and Peter is basically going to deliver this, this speech that takes up most of the rest of Acts 2, and the main point of his speech is to explain what's going on and to encourage a direct response to what's happened. So he's going to get up and he's going to say, you know, um, some of you are confused by what's going on, and you even think that people are drunk because they're saying all this crazy stuff, speaking in different languages. But actually, even though this is unusual, I think I can make sense of it. And he's going to help them make sense of it. And there's a couple of ways that he helps them make sense of it. You know, God showing up as wind and as fire was not completely unheard of. In the Old Testament, can you think of a time when God showed up like fire? The burning bush. One of the key turning points in the Old Testament. God shows up in a bush that's on fire, and Moses, I don't know how he knew this, but as he got close to that bush, he kicks off his sandals because it's holy ground. Something's going on, right? That story would have been told over every Jewish person. God showed up in fire. God showed up in fire. So when you're looking around the room and there's tongues of fire, something in you says, hey, this might be God. The wind going through the room. Can anyone think of a time when the the wind of God came in in a mighty way in the Old Testament? The, The Red Sea, the parting of the Red Sea. And also in Ezekiel, the valley of dry bones, the wind comes in. And so... Again, what Peter's saying is, hey, this is different, but there's, a, there's, there's some precedent. There's, like, that's, let's just really just think about who God is. This is consistent with who God is, even though it's different. So he points back to his knowledge of the Old Testament. And then he goes a little deeper. He said, actually, this reminds me of one of the minor prophets. This reminds me of a prophet called Joel. Maybe not one of the heavy hitters in the Old Testament, but this reminds me of something that Joel said. He said, in the last days, God said, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. 
Now, the day of the Lord was a day when righteousness would come, when justice would be established. It was a very strong Old Testament theme, and people waited and waited and waited for the day of the Lord to come. They anticipated it, they prayed for it, they hungered for it. And Peter's saying, you know what? The day of the Lord is actually here. It's come. How do we know it's come? We know it's come because of Jesus, and we know it's come. This is another sign that the day of the Lord has come because the Spirit is being poured out on all people. Joel told us that this was going to happen. So Peter is not done yet. He's not done making his case that this is something new that is of God. So he said, you know, he basically has said, Hey, Joel told us this day was coming. And what's actually fascinating about the final passage in Joel is it talks about people being calling out on the name of the Lord and being saved. That's in Joel. So not only is Peter content to make that case, but then he says, you know, fellow Israelites, he's really getting to them now, right? Hey, you guys, this is what he's saying. All of you are witnesses to Jesus. That's what he says. And actually, remember that Jesus was accredited or basically validated by God? How do we know that? Well, there was miracles, there was wonders, there was signs. And he says, you all know it. You all know that Jesus did these things, and you all know that God validated Jesus' ministry. What's the biggest sign of that, the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead. Oh, he's not done. He is really just doubling down on these guys in this speech. So he says, there's Old Testament precedent. Joel has talked about it. You yourself saw Jesus. And actually, here we go. Here's the next big piece of the argument. King David in the Old Testament, also saw this day coming. So if you're Peter, this is genius, because you're just laying down card after card after card to make the case, right? Who's going to argue with King David in the Old Testament, right? He's like the guy. He wrote so many of the book of, the book of Psalms. His words are used in the worship of Israel. He was king at the high point. Of Israel, I mean, he's like the guy, right? If you can convince people that David was on board with all of this, then you have pretty much won the argument. And Peter spends a long time using David's writings to make the case. He calls David, interestingly here, he calls, we often think of David as a king, but he calls David a prophet in this passage. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. And seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life. We are all witnesses of it. He says, David saw this day coming. It's really clear. What's the response? When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter bore witness to Christ. 
And there was a conviction that came. And the people said, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you, for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And we see here the birth of the church. And the church, the followers of Christ, go from about 120 people at the start of the chapter, second chapter of Acts to over 3,000 by the end. So what happens here in this crucial transition between the end of Jesus' ministry and what we see here at Pentecost? When the disciples were wondering, where is all of this going? Where is all of this going? I don't think they could have ever imagined that there would be this very, very dramatic event that would suddenly start a whole group of people gathering together as what we know today as the church. Now, Jesus had kind of talked about a few things. Remember, he had said to Peter, you know, you are the rock upon which I'll build my church. I mean, there was hints of it, right? But how is this all going to happen? If you've ever wondered, how am I ever going to talk about Jesus? How is our culture ever going to grow in its knowledge of God? How are we going to see lives changed? How are we going to, how's all this going to happen? Well, the disciples were in the same boat. Can you imagine waiting in the upper room? Jesus is gone. Right? You know the expression, so-and-so has left the building? Right? Jesus has left the building. And what was his direction to them? To wait. That is not a very action-oriented command, Jesus. He tells them to wait. And why is it that they are to wait? Because they're going to receive a gift from God. What's the easiest way to receive a gift from anyone? Is it easier to receive a gift if you're running around the room? It's kind of hard, right? Even if you're walking, it's hard to receive a gift, right? You ever see the runners, the 4x4 relay at the Olympics, and they have the, the baton, and they don't quite get it right? They don't receive the gift from the person in front of them, right? They're trying to do it so fast. Jesus says, there's a gift that's coming that I want you to receive. I want you to be ready for it. The best way to be ready for it is to wait for it to come. And so that's what they do. Uh, The New Testament, written in the Greek language, uses a very particular word for the church. It uses the word ecclesia. You may have heard of it. And we often talk about the church in a kind of a general way. And a lot of people in our culture, when we say the word church, what might they think? Might think of a building, right? Oh, that's the church on such and such a road, or that's the church on the corner of such and such. 
And so we often like to say in sermons like this, well, actually, no, remember, the church is the people, right? The church is the people. It's not the building. The building kind of is the church, too, because that's just the word we use, right? But it's really the people, right? It doesn't really matter in one sense. Now, that helps, but it's actually, it doesn't get us the full way of where we need to go. Because the church is the people of God, but it's actually the people of God when they are gathered together for a particular purpose. See, that word ecclesia was actually used when groups of people would come together in that culture for a particular purpose. And so, when we come together as church, we come together for a particular purpose. And what is the purpose? Well, in a really, really big picture sense, it's to bear witness to Christ. I want to leave you with these three words. Power, authority, and witness. If you're asking yourself, how do I reach out to that friend, that coworker who needs to know Jesus? How do we drive around our community and think about, how do we reach all of these homes? How do we reach all of these businesses? How do we let them know about Jesus? From our passage this morning, these three words really stand out. Jesus promised that his power would come. Do you ever feel like your words are not full of power? Perhaps your life witness, you think, oh, not always 100%, not always the best. Sometimes I get it right. Jesus says there's actually uh, power, and it's not, thankfully, yours. It's mine. I give it to you. It's the Holy Spirit. So if you want more of the power of God in your life to witness, to speak of Jesus, the lesson from the disciples this morning is to to wait. We sometimes call that resting or soaking in God's presence, to be filled with the Spirit. In Matthew's version of Jesus going to heaven and the last words he spoke to the disciples, he actually talked a lot more about authority than he did about power. And we put these two passages together, we really hear what Jesus is saying in a fuller sense. As Jesus was going to heaven, he said, all authority on heaven and earth is given to me. Now go. And the implication is, the disciples now had this authority to go. So again, do you ever wonder if your voice or your life has any type of authority Jesus says, it does. And again, it's not just because of who we are. It's because Jesus himself has all authority, and he's said, go. We are to be witnesses. What does it mean to be a witness? If you're a witness to something, it means that you have particular knowledge and particular experience of that thing. Imagine you see a car crash, right? Maybe something not, hopefully not too serious, but you see a car crash, but it's serious enough where you've got to stick around for the police and you've got to tell them what happened, right? You're a witness, right? Now, what makes you a good witness? Well, you can say, this car did this, this other car did this, and this is what happened, right? You, you have knowledge that you can share. 
that's also what, what gives you authority as a witness is the fact that you were there, right? That you saw it, you experienced something of that accident, right? So you have knowledge of what happened and you have experience of what happened, right? Now imagine if you only had experience, right? The cop shows up, hey, were you here when the accident happened? Yep, I was here. What happened? No idea. I couldn't tell you. But you were there, right? Oh yeah, I was there. Experience, but no knowledge. If your life is totally changed by Jesus, and somebody says, you've changed. You have, you're a different person than you were three months ago. What, what's going on? If you said, I, I don't know. I think I'm eating better. I'm exercising a little more. If the change is Jesus in your life, and you can't tell anyone about that, that's experience, but no knowledge, right? So you have to know something about Jesus. Okay, let's, let's flip it around. Say you have knowledge, but no experience, right? Say at that accident, the police officer says, uh, what happened? Oh, well, let me tell you what happened. This guy did this, and this other person did this, and it was a disaster, and yeah. It's clearly this person's fault. Oh, oh, were you there? Oh, no, I wasn't there. No, 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 no. My buddy told me. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Yeah, I'll see you later. Yeah, yeah, back to work. Keep going. You don't have authority to talk about the accident because you weren't there, right? You had no experience of it, right? Undermines your knowledge. So what this passage shows us is Peter had knowledge and experience, right? He had knowledge and experience. He knew who Jesus was. He knew how to testify about Jesus. He had all of this experience. And what did he do at the end of the passage? He said, I want to invite you into a deeper knowledge, and I want to invite you into a deeper experience. And we can see that people responded to that invitation. You know, in our everyday lives, we're always bearing witness to what is beautiful, to what is good, and to what is true. If you have an amazing meal, you'll often bear witness to that meal. Boy, that meal was so good. If you find this great new restaurant, you bear witness to that restaurant. Hey, you guys should go there sometime. It's really good. Right? We're kind of, we know what it is to bear witness. We don't use that language. But when you come across something that's real good, it's just got that, oh yeah, that's just the way, it's just so good. We tell people, right? We're always bearing witness to something. And in the same way, as Christians, we're called to bear witness to the goodness, to the beauty, to the truth of who Jesus is knowing that we have been given the power of the Holy Spirit, that we've been given the authority of Jesus himself to do this task. We often wonder, what am I responsible for as a Christian in going out? And the New Testament is clear that we're called and responsible to be witnesses. It's the Holy Spirit that brings conviction into people's lives. And how you're to be a witness is going to look different maybe than how I'd be a witness. Because different people... 
are in different stages of their faith journey. Some people are closer to the kingdom than others. Some people already know things about Jesus, and some people don't know anything about Jesus. And that's where we can, we can rest, and we can ask, and we can say, God, what is it that I need to know to tell this person? Yeah, Peter knew exactly what to say. He's like, look, if I can convince them about direct Old Testament quotations, if I can tell them about Joel, if I can tell them about David, and I can tell them that they were there and saw Jesus too, that's a slam dunk. And ask God, what's going to really help me to be an effective witness? And then ask for the Spirit to come and to do what the Spirit does. And you might say, what's the bare minimum that I need to know? What's the bare minimum that I need to have experienced to be an effective witness? Well, I want to close with a couple of verses from Scripture so that you have a real sense of what's, what's all that I need to really know and what's all that I really need to have experienced. In Romans chapter 10, Paul writes these words. He said, The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe that you are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith that you are saved. And a little bit later he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, which actually is from Joel and is actually a verse that Peter uses in Acts 2. And then a couple of chapters later in the New Testament, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us of what the gospel is. What I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Have you experienced Jesus in that way? Have you said, Jesus, I place my total faith in you? I repent, just like those hearers in, in Acts chapter 2 that we read this morning. Peter said, repent, and they repented. They said, I confess my sin, I turn away from my sin. I put Jesus Christ as Lord of my life. I trust in him for eternal life and to come back to God the Father. I believe it in my heart, and I profess it with my mouth, just as Paul has written in Romans chapter 10. If you know that and you have experienced it, you have the knowledge and you have the experience to bear witness to Jesus. We often make it super complicated. And there's lots of additional great arguments that we can make, often intellectual arguments, lifestyle arguments for who Jesus is. But the bottom line is, We experience Jesus as Lord and Savior, and we bear witness to him because we believe it in our hearts, and we proclaim it with our minds. So I want to pray for you this morning that you'll be able to go deeper in your knowledge and your experience in order to be witnesses in this community. So let's pray together.
Lord God, we look to you this morning. You are the God who is so concerned with the whole earth. You want all people to come to know you. And you sent your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to this earth. He died, was buried, he rose again. You have sent the Holy Spirit to empower and to enable us as individuals and to empower your church to be witnesses to you. I pray for every person and every household here this morning, God, that you would pour out a fuller measure of your Holy Spirit. For the power of witness, not just to make us more Christ-like, though that is important, God, but for the power of witness in this world. Help us, God, to walk and to move in authority, the authority that you give, Lord Jesus. We praise you for the response on the day of Pentecost where 3,000 were added to the church that day. And we know that people hunger for you, God, and are still, to this day, repenting and putting their faith in you. God, we pray for an increase of your kingdom in this community. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, everyone.